This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Of course, we're talking a little bit about the election today for our hot question of the day. And that's because the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and the Mustel Group have been doing this survey. They did it during the municipal elections last year. They're doing it for the federal election. And that's where they asked the public, like, what do you think is the most important issue? Like, what is the most important issue to you? during this election campaign. And unlike other surveys, they didn't predetermine the list. You know, they didn't say, is it this, this, or this? They asked people just an open-ended question, what's most important to you? And that's why the results are a little bit different that you're going to hear in other surveys. So what happened was their survey found that 49% of the residents that they asked cited the environment as their top issue in the upcoming election. However, businesses, 45% of the businesses said the economy is their top issue. The environment came in second to the businesses. So we wanted to know what is more important to you in this election? That is our hot question of the day today. Is it the environment or is it the economy? Uh, trying to see what kind of an impact these questions actually have. Uh, now go to Sarah 980 or at CKNW online to cast your vote on this. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com or check out our buzz line. Give us a call. Let us know your thinking on this. 604-331-BUZZ. That's 604-331-2899. They had a whole bunch of other results too that were really interesting. There is a bit of a disconnect too between BC and other provinces. Uh, you know, the fact that residents here rated the co- the uh, environment as their number one issue, that is not the case in other provinces. They found that Metro Vancouver in particular was just a little bit of a different area in terms of priorities that you will see elsewhere. But for you, what is it? The environment or the economy? Cast your vote on our hot question of the day. We are going to be talking more about this. Well, what is the biggest issue for you in this federal election? Is it climate change? Maybe healthcare? How about the economy? Or affordability. Well, the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, along with the Mustel Group, recently conducted an extensive survey of residents and businesses in Metro Vancouver to try and answer that question. It's called the Vote Local Survey, and they're just releasing the results this morning. And it does show that once again, BC and Metro Vancouver are a bit different when it comes to priorities. Uh, We're going to run through some of the results now with Global News reporter Richard Zussman, who joins us. Well, Richard, thanks for joining us to talk about this this morning. So tell me about this survey. Who did this? And do th- is this is like a regular thing, right? The Greater Vancouver Board of Trade does? Yeah, Simi, they've done it for the municipal election. This is the first one they've done for this federal election. And really interesting findings. I think anyone living in Metro Vancouver would think, you know, the provincial election, the big issue is affordability. The municipal election, the big issue is affordability. Well, when actual Metro Vancouverites were asked what the biggest issue was for the federal election, it was the environment that came out number one. 49% of the general population, they, they believe that the environment is the number one issue. Businesses were also asked, as part of this study that the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade uh, sponsored in conjunction uh, with the Mistel Group and Fleischman Hillard, uh, and the business community said that the economy was the most important issue, 45% of them did, but the environment stuck in second at 37%, affordability uh, for the business community coming in fourth, for the general population third. You know, obviously one of those really significant issues that, you know, Metro Vancouverites are hoping political parties will address in this campaign. Right. So that's very different than it sounds like from what other parts of the country are saying. Yeah. And one of the places, Quebec has done similar polling. Environment has emerged as the top issue. But almost everywhere else, the economy, health care, and even affordability, especially in Metro Toronto and Ontario, stand out. So British Columbia is alone. And a lot of that, when you speak to people and you look at the results uh, from this survey, Simi, British Columbians feel, and it won't surprise anyone, this deep vested interest in the economy, an investment in our coast, and question decisions around investment in pipelines and non-renewables. So on the issue of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, a huge differentiation from the general population of the business community. A little bit more than 50% of those in Metro Vancouver either strongly support or uh, sort of average support the pipeline 
uh, development and the expansion. Whereas the business community, that number semi goes up over 70%. So there's a very different thought in Metro Vancouver around that project the effects it has on the economy, but also the potential impacts there could be on the environment. Right. Let's talk about the economic picture as well, because it sounds like Metro Vancouver residents weren't that optimistic when looking at the economic picture. Yeah, that's one of those things that really stood out to me as well, is that people are concerned about what is going to unfold over the next five years, over the next decade, and sort of the effects that government can have um, on uh economy. So one of the questions that was asked is, you know, what do you think will happen to the future of the Canadian economy in the next five years? The general population, 28% of them say it will decline, 31% say it will stay the same, only 15% says it will improve. Talk to the business community about that, 43% believe it will decline, just 17% believe it will improve. And, you know, it's one of those things that should be concerning to political parties as they start building a vision for the country and for Metro Vancouver around how they can address the issues to grow the economy, promote jobs, uh, and to keep people satisfied that uh, you know things are going to uh, get better and continue to get better in this uh, in this region. Interesting. Then, so even though there was seems like there was a bit of pessimism about you know the five year outlook for the economy, it still didn't rank as the top kind of overwhelming issue. And and one of those things you hear it all the time, Simi. Justin Trudeau especially talks about the balance between the economy and the environment, the environment and the economy. But it's still the environment, the, the, the effects of climate change, uh, resource development, you know, uh, paving a path for our future is what stands out to people in terms of the issue that matters most. So what was also interesting is that you know, these were ideas that got put forward unprompted. So when... Uh, the polling firm called and asked about the important issues. People were asked, what are the issues that are important to you? And they just listed them. So right. healthcare historically does well because pollsters prompt people to say, is healthcare important to you? And everyone says, oh, yeah, yeah, of course healthcare is important to me. When asked unbidden, healthcare doesn't do particularly well, especially in a study like this. Right. So this wasn't just people pressing numbers on a list that had already been made. They, exactly. This was people making the actual list as they're responding. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. So what happens now with these results, Richard? Yeah, so, you know, it's part of a longer, uh, greater conversation that we can have. The results are available uh, online. Uh, I think we've linked to it on the uh, Global News website, uh, or we will soon, Mm -hmm. and also available on the Board of Trade website where you can take a look at the numbers themselves. But it's about creating a conversation. I was involved in an event uh, earlier this morning where the uh, report was presented, uh, and then also candidates from for political parties, the Greens, the NDP, the Conservatives and the Liberals had a chance to respond to the results. So it's about creating uh, dialogues in the, a discussion around these issues. Um, and then other than that, uh, you know, the British Columbians will get to decide if they believe these are the most important issues when they start hearing the ideas and platforms from the political parties and they cast right. their vote uh, on October 21st. Did you get a sense from the results, Richard, that there was a disconnect at all between the residents who were responding versus the business owners who were responding? Yeah, there are a few gaps in the, you know, one I mentioned around the Transmountain Pipeline. There was another big gap between, you know, moving away from the development of non-renewable resources. I think the general population is more sort of focused on moving away and the business community sort of understands uh, the integrity and, and how closely linked it is to our economy now and believes that we should not uh, right now start moving away from those resources. That's about a 12-point gap between the two. But other than that, other than sort of the leaning towards the environment for the general population, most of the other issues, they're in lockstep. Like lots of concerns about um, Metro Vancouverites having to leave the community uh, and go elsewhere because of the affordability crisis. That's an issue that's resonating very much with the general population as well with businesses and what governments can do to address that issue. All right, Richard, I know you're on the campaign trail as well. What are you doing this week? <laughs> You've got a lot of stuff so, to cover. Yeah, so the Green Party has introduced its platform. We'll have a lot on that uh, tonight on the news hour. And uh, just keep I focused on the Greens. And we're going to keep bringing lots of information around the ridings to watch and the issues that are mattering to people. You know, BC is so fascinating. Four-way races in lots of places between the Greens, NDP, Conservatives, and Liberals. 
you know, we're early days here, Simi, but it's still shaping up, obviously, to be a really interesting campaign. Oh, it sure is. So many bozo eruptions, <laughs> too, right? Like, I know every party yeah. has had these, but some parties more than others. Sounds like the Green Party has a bit of an issue with these. They do. And I think when you're a party like the Greens that is now coming into the mainstream, they don't have the same sort of infrastructure that a lot of other parties have in terms of vetting candidates. And the opposition is doing a better job of vetting their candidates than the Greens are. And so you get all this information out. The Liberals are also dropping lots of information on Conservative candidates. And no doubt we'll see some from all the major parties as this campaign goes on. Oh, no doubt. Have fun, Richard. Thanks, Timmy. Thanks. That is Richard Dustman, our global news reporter. Not only is he on the campaign trail, he's covering issues about the campaign. In particular, this Vote Local survey. Vote Local is a survey that is done by, in conjunction with the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and the Mustel Group, where they ask uh, local residents and businesses what they feel are the biggest issues for them uh, in the election and the campaign. And the difference between this one and, say, other surveys that you hear about, which I think is an important differentiation, is that there is no preset list. It's an open-ended question. So when they call or whatever, get a hold of somebody to do this survey, they just ask them, what's the most important thing to you in this election? They don't say, is it this, this, is it A, B, or C? And then that way, that way they get a different kind of result sometimes. We have talked a lot in recent years about opioids, in particular, the drug Oxy and how just destructive it has been, the addictions that it has caused, the problems that it has caused, not just here in BC, but all over North America. Well, Purdue Pharma is the company that made billions upon billions of dollars by selling the prescription painkiller OxyContin. And they have been widely criticized and sued by lots of people because it is alleged that they ignored the warning signs. They ignored mass prescriptions. Uh, they ignored any possible efforts that could have been made to kind of halt opioid abuse problems before they started. Well, now, in light of all those lawsuits, comes the news that last night, Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy in the United States, and that is just days after reaching a tentative settlement with many of the state and local governments that are suing the company. Now, this filing was anticipated, but what does this mean for the people who have sued? What does it mean for the company? And is this just some kind of a step to avoid kind of facing the music with all these lawsuits. To talk more about this, we are joined now by Adam Levitin, who's a professor specializing in bankruptcy at Georgetown Law. Adam, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Simi. Good to talk with you. Was this inevitable that a company this big facing that many lawsuits would do this? Yes, it was. Um, one of the problems for a company that's, being fa- that's facing thousands of lawsuits is it's just too difficult and too expensive to defend against all of them, even if the company had completely meritorious defenses. And I'm, I'm not saying that's the case here. Um, the, what Purdue is doing with its bankruptcy filing is it's bringing all of the different lawsuits into a single forum. And it is there, by having every, all the litigation going on through the bankruptcy court, it will have greater ability to coordinate um, it, it's some sort of a settlement uh, with uh, regarding the litigation. That settlement may, in the end, not be something that all the parties agree to. Right. But the U.S. bankruptcy law allows um, uh, would allow a settlement to effectively be imposed upon non-consenting parties if Purdue's proposal fits certain uh, meets certain uh, requirements. Right. So this is strategic then. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then what does this mean for the actual company? Is that the end of Purdue Pharma? No, not at all. I mean, basically, what's going to happen is Purdue, the um, ownership of Purdue is going to get transferred to a bunch of uh, Purdue's creditors. Presumably, it's going to be the, very, the various states and local governments that have um, opioid-related claims. They're going to end up owning Purdue. And uh, Purdue, you know, Purdue produces stuff besides opioids, and it will continue to function. And the states that end up owning the Purdue stock will just sell it off into the market and you know, convert it to cash. And the, the real question in the bankruptcy is how much the money the Sackler family, that's the family that indirectly owns Purdue, how much they're going to kick in 
in order to get a release for claims against them. Right, because the Sackler family has really become the center of all this, haven't they, Adam? Because people want to know what they knew while they were running this company, what did they do or not do, and how much money are they still keeping for themselves? Oh yeah, they've they've taken out quite a bit of money from the company, and they've been quite, and they were quite active in, in involvement in it. And, and they're not you know, the you know, so one of at least one of the Sacklers who was running the company was a medical doctor. He you know, presumably understood quite well what what the drugs that they were selling. So um, the, the the difficulty that some of the produced creditors face is there are time limitations on how long. You can go uh, how far back you can go after money that was transferred out of Purdue. And in basically the best case scenario, it's probably six years. Right. And yet they, we know they've been transferring money out long before that. That's right. So there's going to be, you know, there, there will be, there is some money that the Sacklers took out of Purdue that will never be, never be clawed back. That, that's pretty clear. Yeah, this sounds so frustrating, though, Adam, because then I wonder where, and I'm sure other people do, where is the accountability for a company that clearly saw the signs of this oncoming kind of opioid crisis and didn't do anything? Well, Simi, the, the, this is one of the limitations of the bankruptcy system. It's not, it's not a system that's designed to produce accountability. Instead, the, the goal of the U.S. bankruptcy system is to um, take what would otherwise be otherwise productive companies and deleverage them and return the assets to productive use. So if Purdue is making other medicines that are good, we want Purdue to keep doing that. And the only way that Purdue is going to be able to keep doing that is if it can uh, clean up its books and deal with liabilities. But it leaves people very, you know, rightly feeling unsatisfied that justice hasn't been done. And, you know, the Sacklers may contribute some blood money to a, to a settlement, but um, they're going to still, in the end of the day, have billions right. of dollars left. And there will still be, you know, many, many people who have, you know, been incredibly harmed by opioids. Is this like in your experience then in studying bankruptcies, is this generally what happens? You have this crisis situation, whether it's kind of Enron or whether it's Purdue Pharma, these companies kind of break up, we see them go away. And does that mean the whole thing goes away then? No, not actually. They, they, that, that where the company ceases to exist is really the, the ex- exception rather than the rule. Usually the company, the, if there's a viable business model, the company clean, cleans up its books, it gets rid of liabilities, moves on, and is right back in business. So if you look at, let's say, the U.S. airline industry, most of the large air, air, air carriers in the U.S. have gone through bankruptcy, um, some of them more than once, um, and they, they, they deal with their liabilities and they, come right back, they spring right back into business. Um, something like Enron is, the, is, really, is really more the exception, and even then, parts of Enron are still functioning, just owned by other, other entities. Now. Right. So Purdue Pharma could emerge from this and move forward with its other patents and the other medicines that it produces. Oh, I, I assume that that will be the case and, you know, quite possibly still operating uh, under the name Purdue Pharma. Yeah, but would they want to do that? Like, how much of a change well, can they do going forward? They, they, there, there may be a branding question whether they want to give themselves a new name. That, 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 that may be a smart move for them. But um, presumably, you know, if the presumably the, if the pieces of Purdue that make um, you know non-opioid drugs are valuable, those pieces will be kept together and they will keep operating. Yeah, I guess the question then about bankruptcy law, Adam, is and who does it protect? Does it protect the companies or is it protecting the people who are hurt by those companies? Well, it's in its, in its own way, it's actually, it is protecting the people who are hurt by the companies. that split. So if you split up Purdue and just kind of sold it for scrap, you wouldn't get a lot of money. Um, Purdue's more valuable as an operating concern than, uh, than in liquidation. And by giving the stock in the re- in reorganized Purdue to the victims, they get the benefits of the val- of of the mint- of the retained value in Purdue. So Purdue goes forth after the bankruptcy, makes money. That mo- that's going to increase the value of the stock, which is now going to be owned by the opioid victims. Right. So then, that the benefit of all of this moving forward is that the Sackler family is essentially giving up Purdue Pharma. You got it. The Sackler family will have, uh, is not going to have any interest in Purdue Pharma going forward. One of the, there is a question about whether they're going to have to give up their interest in, an, in another pharmace- pharmaceutical company um, that basically has man- uh, marketed opioids overseas. Right. So how long do you think this process is going to take? Oh, this is going to... Uh, I think we're looking at you know, two, two and a half years before we really know how, how things shake out in Purdue. We know what the general, what the general picture of it's going to look like, 
but there's going to be a lot of wrangling about exactly how much money is going to be moving and exactly who who have, uh, which opioid victims are have what sort of claim. There's a whole range of opioid of opioid victims. And when I say victims, I'm not just talking about natural people like you and me. I'm talking about governmental units in particular, you know, states, counties, cities, claiming that they've had uh, various harms from um, everything from, you know, increased ambulance services to payment uh, on um, uh, of government insurance benefits, so forth. Right. And figuring out who's owed what and how the money gets divvied out, will, will, uh, that, that will take some time. Right. And these rules only apply to the United States, right? Because, I mean, it, the opioids were sold elsewhere, like in Canada. Absolutely. So at this point, it only applies to the United States. We And Purdue has not uh, commenced any sort of Canadian bankruptcy uh, petition, as far as I know. Um, if, if and when Purdue does that, there are procedures for coordination um, between U.S. and Canadian bankruptcy courts. We've seen that in the case of Nortel's bankruptcy in particular. And it, it actually has worked pretty well, but Canadian courts are not going to be bound by any U.S. decision and vice versa. I'll right, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Adam, thank you so much for explaining it to us. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. That was really interesting. That's Adam Levitin, a professor specializing in bankruptcy at Georgetown Law, explaining what happens now. You've seen the headline, undoubtedly, that Purdue Pharma, the maker of the opioid painkiller OxyContin, has filed for bankruptcy in the United States. And as Adam just explained there, this is a kind of a strategic step in the process, but it does mean that there will be more money available to the plaintiffs and different groups that have been suing uh, Purdue Pharma over this. But is litter on the street or in your neighborhood a problem where you live? I'm willing to bet a lot of people would say yes to that question. Every time this comes up on the show, we open the phone lines, people call in, they email me and they rant about it. What is this problem that we've now had? It's almost like we came full circle with it, right? It used to be such a horrible thing to litter. Now we see people doing it all the time and we feel like we're kind of losing this war against the garbage and the litter out there. Well, in Port Coquitlam, they're going to try doing something new, a little bit different on this front, hiring somebody to actually full-time pick up litter five days a week. Let's talk to the mayor of Port Coquitlam about this. Brad West joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Tell me about this idea. Where did it come from? Well, really, it's something that I heard a lot about when I was going door to door during the election, uh, asking for people's support to be the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Uh, I heard from people about um, there just being too much litter, uh, the city not feeling as clean as it should. And so one of the things that I've really tried to uh, make a real high priority and focus um, during my time as mayor is that the city uh, invest in getting the basics right. You know, I, I know quite often cities, uh, you know, reach for the shiny objects or they get distracted and they end up focusing a lot of energy and time on things that are outside of their mandate. But there's some really specific things that cities are responsible for that people send their tax dollars to City Hall for. And one of those things is cleanliness. And so it, it really came out of that and a desire that in, in Port Coquitlam, I want us to be the cleanest city in the province. I want us to invest mm. some resources to get this right because I really do think it's foundational to a good community. When the city is clean, people feel better about it. They take more pride in the community. Local businesses succeed. You know, it, it really all kind of builds off of that. So right. for me, I think it's just one of those basic core responsibilities that the city has and that people expect to be met. And so that's why I'm really pleased that we're taking these steps. Yeah, what is this position that you've hired for? Is, have you already hired somebody to do this job? We have. Uh, he's, uh, he has begun already. And uh, early reports are that he's doing a great job and, uh, and really approaching it with a lot of enthusiasm. And so... The position is uh, a one FTE position. Um, you know, to be clear, we've always had um, city employees who go around and, and pick up garbage in the yeah. city's garbage bins. But what's new about this is it's a dedicated position. And uh, actually, if you're on my Facebook page, you would see I posted a picture of him. He's out there with uh, uh, one of the litter picker-uppers, and he's got a bucket that's got City of Port Coquitlam on the side, and he's uh, going up and down uh, some of our main streets picking up the trash that gets, uh, unfortunately, uh, 
thrown out. So right. this is a full time um, job, it, right? This is a new full time job where that's all it, this person is going to do five days a week. You're exactly right. So we felt it was really important that it, we have a dedicated person to this because, you know, again, while other people maybe try and do it on top of some other things they're doing, to have a dedicated resource who, by the way, also can be our eyes and ears uh, in our neighborhoods and on the street. So I've already heard that, you know, he's been able to point out some other things. Maybe we've got an uneven sidewalk. Maybe we've got uh, a lamppost where the light is burnt out. So um, again, those real sort of core basic things that the municipality is actually responsible mm-hmm. for and making sure that those are done right. Uh, and, and so right. It, it's it, just a fantastic thing. And and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this as well, Simi. We were able to do this without raising taxes a cent. So what we did was we gave direction to our staff to prioritize this initiative and find the money to right. pay for it within the city's current budget, which is exactly what we did. Now, is this a new thing? Do you know of any other municipality that is doing something like this, or is this new? Um, To the best of my knowledge, there is not, in in most cities, there might be an exception there. I'm sure someone will correct me, but um, to my knowledge, there is not, in Metro Vancouver at least, dedicated resource who's who the person who has basically one job and that is to go to different parts of the city every single day and pick up litter and pick up garbage and keep the city clean and do you also hope that's like visible to people as well so they can see like look at this person's picking up your garbage stop littering too people have some responsibility here totally i mean and in many respects it's it's disappointing that we need a position like this because you know, people should be taking personal responsibility, you know, but the reality is, is just sitting back and, and wishing that people would do that hasn't got us anywhere. So, you know what, city spends money on a lot of different things. I think this is an area where an investment was really warranted. And totally, I hope that it really encourages people to to think twice and maybe reflect upon, you know, the, the people who are just, you know, throwing the, the coffee mm-hmm. cup, uh, you know, in the sidewalk or whatever, Cigarette and maybe they think twice yeah. about that. All that kind of stuff. Listen, uh, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks so much, Simi. Appreciate it. That is the mayor of Porco Quitlam, Brad West, talking about a new initiative in their city where they hired somebody, a full-time job, and that o- the only job that person has five days a week is to pick up litter, to go all over the city, have the routine, the places that he goes, and just picks up litter. You know, true crime has never been more popular. We're talking books and podcasts and internet boards, all of that stuff. One of the reasons why is that it's because of the internet. Those places like message boards, places where people can gather and actually get involved in investigating the mysteries that they have read about in the past. We've seen it, right, in high profile cases uh, like the Golden State Killer case. In fact, when it comes to that particular case, you may have read the best-selling book by, Mich- by Michelle McNamara. It's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. It is a great book. I highly recommend it. And one of the people who worked with Michelle McNamara is author and journalist Billy Jensen. He has made following true crime stories his life's work. And how he got into it is really interesting as well. He's written about this whole thing in his new bestseller. It's called Chase Darkness With Me, How One True Crime Writer Started Solving Murders. We recently had a chance to chat with Billy Jensen about this. Well, Billy, thanks so much for joining us to talk about your book. Uh, first of all, when did you become fascinated with true crime? Because I know a lot of people are these days, but you have a very personal story. Yeah, you no, know, it started when I was five years old, and uh, it was my very first memory of the first thing I ever said. There was a there was a guy running around New York, uh, which is where I lived, killing people with a forty four caliber handgun, and we called him the forty four caliber killer. And I remember my dad coming home and showing me the newspaper that he was caught. And it was a picture of David Berkowitz, and it said, we have him. And I just remember looking at his picture, and in the vernacular of the day, because this was 1977, this was Happy Days and Sedona Posse, Mm -hmm. I said, he looks like a turkey. And that's the worst first words I remember saying. So, um, you know, I didn't go straight into, okay, let's solve a bunch of murders after that, but that was the seed that was planted. But it clearly was something that you shared with your dad from the stories that you tell there about you often, like, you know, followed the news with your dad, and your dad often had advice for you when he was following these cases. 
He did, yeah. And it was constantly, it wasn't necessarily about the forensics of it. It was more just about how to learn from his mistakes and how to learn from other people's mistakes and not get into, into trouble and uh, not be around people that are going to get into trouble. So uh, any time that he would come across something and saw a, a life lesson that could be learned, uh, he would show me the story and say, read this or look at this, and this is why this happened, and this is why you can't do these things because you'll, you know, you could either get thrown in jail or get killed. Right. But it's one thing to like follow along, which a lot of us do, right? I do. I follow all these true crime stories. I'm fascinated by them too. But it's another thing to actually start actively trying to solve them. How did you get involved in that? Well, you know, as a journalist, I was always, I only wrote about unsolved murders and then, uh, and missing persons. And I was always trying to get some answers from that. I really, you know, yeah, I would have loved to have solved each one of them, but I couldn't. And it's, you know, when you're writing those stories, that's the only stories that you're writing within that genre. Uh, you're writing stories with no endings. And I, you know, just sort of had an aha moment, which takes place kind of in the first third of the book, where I'm just like, wait a minute, I think I can come up with some ideas on how to solve these myself. You know, not solve it. You know, they're not necessarily the crimes that you that you hear about on television all the time, but they're ones where the police, you know, put put some video out there, put a sketch out there. It was maybe in the news for a couple of days, and that was it. Four or five months later, I'm going to take a look at it again and say, you know what, I might be able to use social media in order to help this. Right, and you clearly discovered that there's a whole community of people out there who do want to do this. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a lot of people, and there's also there's also a lot of people that that just have a, a particular set of knowledge that you can go to. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of video that comes across uh, my email box that is um, maybe a car fleeing the scene of a murder, and they're trying to identify the car, and the police don't know what the car is. And I can just put it into Reddit, into a Reddit subgroup about cars, uh, and then they'll give me the, what the car is and the make and model, and oftentimes the year, within five minutes. It's pretty incredible. So, uh, you know, utilizing the crowd, you know, they're, listen, they weren't sitting there thinking that they wanted to solve any murder or anything like that, but yeah. they just have this particular set of skills where they know that, wow, I know the angle of that bumper and the angle of that, you know, taillight, mm-hmm. and I know that that is a certain type of car. Why do you think this fascinates us so much? Like, why do we love the crime shows and the crime stories and the crime books? I think it's, you know, you're putting some order out of some chaos, and I think that any time that, that, um, that that's something that, that the world is a scary place, so any time that we can you know, see something that shouldn't be there and then see it eradicated and fixed and everything back to normal, there's a natural need or, or want to, to, to actually pay attention to that. I actually equated it, and it's kind of strange, but I equated it to us watching those blackhead popping videos. Uh, you know, there's something there that shouldn't be there. And then you, yeah, exactly. Then you squeeze it, but you can't look away because you're like, oh, that's gross. And that's the bad parts of it. And then it's all done. And then you're, then, you know, it'll be, it'll heal. And, um, it's sort of, it's not that far off, uh, from that. It's, uh, it's something that's, that's horrible sort of at its core. But really what you're trying to do is, is fix something that's, that shouldn't have happened. What do you think is the most rewarding case that you've ever worked on? I would say probably the Marcus Gaines case because it was the first one and, you know, I was working so closely with the family and, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, have it be, it wasn't actually a national story. It was run nationally because the video was so compelling of a guy getting attacked in the street and to have, uh, you know, the police throw up their hands after five months and then me be able to identify the guy and then tell him where he is. And then finally, after six months of IDing him, they go and get him. Uh, and being able to tell the family this is this is this is who did it. This is who attacked your your loved one. Right. That that was rewarding. And then also, you know, but then there's this sort of you get this high when you're thinking, all right, I think this is the guy. But then you just drop back down when you realize that, uh, you know, the person is still is still gone. You yeah. know, and that was one thing that I wasn't I wasn't expecting, but it happened. Let's talk about your involvement in possibly one of the biggest cases of all, and that is with the Golden State Killer, because you were working on I'll Be Gone in the Dark with Michelle McNamara, and obviously with her death, that kind of thrust you into talking about the case. And then it turns out the police say they've got him. What was that process like? Yeah. Well, Michelle, I wasn't working on it with her. Michelle was uh, was writing the book, and I was friends with Michelle. And when Michelle passed, I... I I talked to her husband. I said, I'll do anything I can to finish this book and help finish this book. So myself and her researcher, Paul Haynes, we finished it. 
and uh, and then got it out there. Then two months after the book came out, uh, they had they had caught him. Yeah, so uh, it's been a, a whirlwind since then uh, of you know being able to, seeing the power of familial DNA and using that to catch criminals. Has that given you a lot more kind of competition, so to speak, now as well, where people go, look at how popular this is. I could do this. I can get involved. <laughs> now, listen, there's 220,000 unsolved murders in America, at least. I know we're in Canada right now, but um, since 1980, I'll take all the competition that I can take. <laughs> and why is it that you think uh, people like you can succeed where police necessarily cannot? It's just a matter of education and a little bit of resources, too. Um, the police... They they don't understand social media the same way that that I might you know or understand marketing and social media marketing. It's a different beast, and they're just not used to it. Uh, when they do, you know, every every one of their uh, departments for a bigger department should have a social media investigations person, not just a social media sort of like PIO that's just pushing out information. And they have to geotarget advertising. They have to do all of these things. It does cost money, but it gets results. And, you know, that's what we're going to see. Same thing with the familial DNA stuff. We're going to see forensic genealogists in larger police departments. We, we have to because we know that this stuff works. It's all the future of policing. Do you think people who do what you do, um, you know, and I, and I know this is from Michelle, lots of people were asking, like, did her work contribute to the catching of the Golden State Killer? Is there enough recognition for this? You know, as far as her work goes, it definitely did because it put more resources behind it. Uh, it was really her dying that, that made him kind of a household name internationally. Nobody really knew who this guy was, and she also renamed him, too, because he was Eron's before he was the rapist original Night Stalker. So, uh, you know, I don't really care so much about the credit other than the fact that it shows people that it actually works, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, to be able to say, hey, Police departments, this works. You should try it yourself and see what happens. And um, so in that respect, the credit is good. But after that, you know, after getting the credit for a couple of them and, and showing that it does work, mm. they can take all the credit in the world as long as they get justice. What are you working on right now? Well, right now I'm working on a uh, updated chapter for the paperback, actually, uh, of Chase Darkness with me because it... Um, you know, we've gotten one update of the Bearbrook uh, murders where we've identified three of the four females in the, in the barrel. So working on that and then uh, working on some active serial killer cases on top of, like, sort of the other investigations that I'm just constantly doing. So, And also we've got a uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark docuseries on HBO that's going to come out in spring or summer of next year. Right, so there doesn't seem to be any shortage. Do you think, uh, Billy, are there particular cases, do you think, that capture the public's imagination? Like, what do you think a case has to have for it to to do that, for people to go, oh, I can't, I got to hear more about this? Yeah, I mean, I wish there were, I wish it was it was a level, more level playing yeah. field, and you see this on, on television. I mean, that's one of the great things about podcasts is that you can tell stories a lot. Television, they're only going to do it if you if you have good visuals, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the cases, you know, they want the twists and turns, they want multiple suspects, you know, anything that you would see in a, in a classic, you know, true crime novel or, or classic novel of, of crime or mystery, um, you know, with all these kind of, you know, crazy twists and red herrings that you see in Agatha Christie. But, uh, you know, for me, I don't always, you know, navigate towards those, you know, I'm not going to navigate towards anybody that needs help. All right. Listen, Billy, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you so much. It's Billy Jensen. His book is called Chase Darkness With Me, How One True Crime Writer Started Solving Murders. And it's really interesting because so many of us kind of go down that slippery slope of wanting to know more about this mystery or that mystery. You know, we've talked a lot about crowding in Surrey, development, how crazy busy everything is out there. And one of the key uh, factors that has really been missing in Surrey over the last five or 10 years is the infrastructure. And people complain, residents complain. They say, listen, you're putting up all these developments, you're allowing all this stuff to be built, but you're not keeping up with it. There's not enough community centers, there's not enough ice rinks, there's not enough places for kids and families and people to go. And so Surrey had kind of embarked on a way to... Uh, 
increase that. One of the ways they did that was by building some ice rinks, quite a few of them, in different parts of the city. Now, remember, there were those two proposed ice rinks in the area of the Cloverdale Fairgrounds. And then the election happened last year, and the new mayor, Doug McCallum, pretty much said that those two ice rinks were not a uh, priority for him or his council. So they put the project on hold and they kind of downplayed concerns at that time where they said, listen, oh, this will come back during the discussions for the budget. Well, now that time has happened. And it sounds like there's a bit of a change of heart. So joining us now to talk more about this is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Hi, Simi. How are you? I yes, am good, uh, thank you. Lots yeah. to talk about today in regards to Surrey and some bad news coming. If you are an ice skater, a hockey player, just like to figure skate in the city of Surrey, um, we are hearing from a couple of councillors that at the council meeting this evening, uh, a proposal is coming before city council uh, that is suggesting that the city hand back control of the fairgrounds to the association that initially ran the fairgrounds, the Lower Fraser Valley Exhibition Association. It is a three-year operating agreement that has been in place between the city and the Exhibition Association dealing with the fairgrounds. That agreement, Simi, is nearing an end at the end of December this year. Now, the report going before council tonight suggests that the lands managed by the city be turned back to this association. And the bottom line in all of this, according to City Councillor Brenda Locke, is that it likely means the promised arenas, two of them, in the end, will not be built. Here's more of what she has to say. Well, certainly uh, the sending all the land back to the association uh, removes it from the, the city's um, ability to create those, that arena there. And uh, that'll be a tremendous disappointment to the community. And is it a disappointment to you? Were you hoping to eventually see these arenas built there? Are you are you sad this isn't going to happen, at least at this point in time? I, I absolutely concerned these arenas aren't going to be happening. And I think there was a, a commitment, albeit uh, a weak one, that we would be reconsidering them in this upcoming budget. Uh, that is what was said last year. And so um, I think this is uh, going to be a real blindside to the community and unfairly. So would you be maybe advocating to try and get these arenas built somewhere else on city land in the city? Uh, Surrey is very light on uh, on infrastructure like that and certainly light on ice. So yes, absolutely. We We need more arenas and we need another pool in Surrey. Now, Janet, I've been following along with the story as you've been reporting it over the last couple of years. And I just remember hearing from you and other parents about how desperately needed these ice rinks were in that part of Surrey. Oh, you can say that again, Simi. And and let's sort of go back and talk about this. There are two ice rinks right now, actually near Surrey City Hall at the North Surrey Arena. But TransLink needs that space to expand the bus loop. So those two arenas closing. In place of those two arenas at North Surrey, three new arenas, which are beautiful, have been opened in the Bridgeview area. But because we have two closing in North Surrey, three opening in Bridgeview, that's a net gain of only one. These two rinks were promised for Cloverdale by the previous administration under Mayor Linda Hepner, as you said, it came before this council, this this current council last fall. A decision was made to postpone it to the next round of budget talks that are set to begin this month. But now it appears those arenas won't be built. So the city of Surrey is only ahead by one arena semi. And as you say, there is a huge demand for ice in the city of Surrey because you have two hockey associations using the arenas. You have the Surrey Minor Hockey Association and you have the Cloverdale Minor Hockey Association. And in Cloverdale alone, there are 1,000 children. And of course, it's not only the hockey players using these, these rinks. They're figure skaters. There's just people that who want to go sense. out and skate. Yeah. Uh, there, there's lots of community groups that use the arenas, not only hockey players. And the demand is huge. Let me talk about that a little bit, Simi. Uh, I know hockey players um, who are on the ice, and these are 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds who are practicing till 11.30 at night. Crazy. And there's other times when they're on the ice at 4.30 in the morning. They're getting up at quarter to four in the morning. 13-year-olds, quarter to four in the morning to leave the house by 4.15 to get on the ice by quarter to five. Because, uh, you know, Surrey's 
a big piece of land to cover. And sometimes oh. it takes, uh, you know, half an hour to drive to a rink from one end of the uh, city to the other end of the city, even longer sometimes. That's what and I couldn't th- understand about that is to say that, oh, we're building it in Bridgeview and the people in Cloverdale should be happy with that makes no sense to me. You're talking about clear on the other side of the city. That's like telling people if you're in the city of Vancouver, um, you know, on the east side in the River District, oh, don't worry, you don't need a new community centre. There's one over on the west side. That's like yeah. way over on the other side of the city. <laughs> it is. It's a long ways from the P of for the people to get from Clayton Heights, for instance, Cloverdale over to the Bridgeview area. It's up 176. It's along Highway 17. Takes a long time. It takes yeah. about half an hour sometimes. And of course, you know, at 4 or 4.30 in the morning, it's a lot quicker, but it's still a fair distance to travel. And parents need to not only get their children to the rinks, but home again and showered and then to school. And it impacts not only the children, but also the parents who have to get to work. And some parents I've heard have had to make that decision. You know what? The commitment is too great. The hours are too crazy, too far to travel. You cannot play hockey anymore or figure skate anymore because of the arena situation in the city of Surrey. And as we heard from Councillor Brenda Locke, it's not only arenas. She feels uh, the north part of Surrey is also missing an additional swimming pool because, as I say, this north Surrey facility that closed also contains a swimming pool. And that's not going to be there anymore. And the pools in Surrey, she said, are used a lot by people and they are really going to miss this pool. So there's all sorts of infrastructure issues at play. It's not only the arenas, it's swimming pools as well and and rec centers in general. And so what does the mayor have to say about this? Like, obviously, it wasn't his priority. It was the previous mayor's. But that doesn't mean it's still not a good idea. Well, you know, we have to still hear from Mayor Doug McCallum. I did uh, email his office. I reached out to his office this morning when I uh, got word of this story. And uh, I still have not heard from him. You know, it is council day. So I realize he's probably busy and in meetings. But we do have a reporter covering the uh, Surrey Council meeting tonight, Simi. And hopefully we will get some answers from the mayor. Maybe he has. Um, maybe he has plans and ideas maybe to build these two promise rinks somewhere else in the city. We don't know right now. We want to hear from him, and hopefully right. we will have that information tonight, tomorrow morning. But leading up to the last election, Janet, I seem to remember the previous council had made quite an effort to address the lack of kind of community centers and recreational infrastructure in the city. Are, have any of those plans carried over to this council? They have. And we have heard from the current mayor, Doug McCallum. He is making an effort and he realizes, you know, there has been a lot of development in the city of Surrey, uh, housing development that has gone in without that other infrastructure in place, including schools. Um, but in terms of infrastructure, there is a new community center that is opening in uh, western part of Clayton Heights. It does not in- include a, um, a sheet of ice or a pool, but it is a rec center. It will be a new library. And uh, there is a YMCA that's going into the North Surrey area near City Hall. But of course, that's a YMCA. It's not a rec center owned and run by the city, but at least it will have a swimming pool, but it will cost more to use that facility facility as compared to a rec center owned by the city. So the mayor has acknowledged this is a problem where infrastructure has not kept kept up. He has promised that he will try and bring it alongside development, housing development that is built. Uh, but it, but that sort of thing doesn't happen overnight, as everybody knows, right? It takes months. Yeah. It takes years sometimes. So that's where we are right now in terms of the ice arenas, at least in, in the Cloverdale Cloverdale area, Simi. Okay, so we'll learn more tonight at this council meeting. Hopefully we will. Uh, um, as we heard from Councillor Brenda Locke, I've uh, also talking to Councillor Jack Hundal. They're planning to bring that up tonight and ask the mayor at the council meeting, hey, what are the plans here? Um, is what's happening with the fairground area in fact true with the yeah. city turning it back to the association? Will the city have no control in terms of an arena there? And if that is the case, will the city be able to look for another parcel of land somewhere, hopefully in that general area of the city, to perhaps build two more planned ice arenas? And we know, Simi, there was a lot of protest last year from hockey parents, hockey players at Surrey City Hall when this went to council for a vote. And when they hear this, I don't think they're going to be very happy. I plan to talk to the uh, president of the Cloverdale Minor Hockey Association this afternoon and hear what he has to say about things too. All right, Janet, thanks very much for that.
Thank you, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. And you know, what's happening in Surrey is happening everywhere. I feel like a lot of communities have neglected the issue of community centers, ice rinks, and swimming pools over the last 15 years or so. So now you have all these residents, and where are they supposed to go? And as part of the Where We Live series, we like to take a look around places in Metro Vancouver, Lower Mainland, little neighborhoods that are important to their communities. Uh, maybe they're a big deal now, or maybe they have historical significance, like the neighborhood we're going to be talking about today. It used to be that if you needed anything related to India, groceries, you know, clothing, whatever, you had to go to Punjabi Market in Vancouver. Uh, nowadays, of course, there are a lot of other choices for you to go to, and the neighborhood is really not what it once was. But Amir Ali spent some time there to see what's happening. On paper, three blocks might seem fairly minuscule when it comes to a commercial neighborhood. But there are three blocks in South Vancouver between the stretch of Maine and 48th and Maine and 51st that are absolutely crucial for businesses and residents of this neighborhood. I'm referring to Punjabi Market. This neighborhood is the first of its kind in Canada, established sometime in the 1970s. With Indian grocery stores, Indian fashion boutiques that include both clothing and jewelry, Indian restaurants, Punjabi market really does have it all. It is especially a sight to behold during the annual Visaki parade, where literally hundreds of thousands of people flock to these streets in beautiful bright colors. Punjabi market has had its share of struggles though, as property prices spiked Many people closed their shops or moved to Surrey where cheaper property existed. However, there seems to be a bit of a resurgence underway, backed by some very passionate and outspoken people. Next year, we are approaching Punjabi Market's 50th anniversary. A little bit of history on Punjabi Market. Indo-Canadian immigrants first arrived in Vancouver around the 1890s, and many of them eventually settled in the neighborhoods around Punjabi Market. I also mentioned some very outspoken and passionate people who are seeking to revitalize Punjabi Market. One of those people is Golzar Nanda. His family owns High Class Jewelers, which has been here for 35 years, almost as long as Punjabi Market has. I asked Golzar... What makes Punjabi market so special to him? My father, he, he came here in the early 80s and uh, the Punjabi market was sort of like a beacon of hope for him. He was the delinquent in his family. He started his apprenticeship in jewelry making when he was 16, whereas his brothers and sisters were all going to school to become dentists and doctors. So the family didn't think that he would amount to much, but uh, the Punjabi market made it so he became very successful. He came here, 85, he opened up High Class Jewelers, uh, his uh, his baby, his first business, and uh, it's still here to this day, 35 years later. And uh, I'm, I'm proud and honored to be able to steward the business going forward. I also asked him to expand a bit on some of the struggles Punjabi market has seen. There's, there's a few issues, you know, on one side you have uh, the city sort of neglected the neighborhood, especially around uh, when the Winter Olympics were coming to Vancouver. They, they had a project set up at uh, the municipal, federal and provincial level where they were going to build uh, a monument in the Punjabi market. But for one reason or another, in 2008, uh, that project fell through. And the business leaders in the community here, they sort of felt like it was the straw that broke the camel's back. They didn't think that they'd have the support uh, from uh, the public anymore. So they decided to go where they felt the grass is greener, which is Surrey. You know, we, we lost uh, Frontier Cloth House, Guru Bazaar, two major anchor tenants in the neighborhood. And uh, they moved there and their businesses are, are doing well there. Also, like uh, I mentioned before, the city of Vancouver, the, the public realm here hasn't uh, been kept very well. And there's, a, there's macro issues in Vancouver too with rising taxes and rising rents. Like I said before, next year is the 50th anniversary of Punjabi Market. And I asked Gulzar what he's trying to do to revitalize this vital community. Well, for, for me especially, I, I understand there's always an economic issue, but we want, we want social profits. We want to be able to revitalize the Punjabi market, more focused on arts and culture. We want to be able to uh, express our heritage through this space to the rest of Vancouver. And we want to attract people who want to learn more about our, our culture and our community. And I think another aspect of it is to make sure that there's a space in Vancouver uh, that 
future generations, you know, my kids, their kids can come and they can learn about uh, their their history in, in the Western world and, you know, their history back home. I also asked him what makes high-class jewelers so special. So our business has always been a way for us to connect with the community. Uh, we're, we're here from 11 to 7 every single day, but really what happens afterwards is where the magic starts, you know, like getting to know different families in the neighborhood, creating relationships with them, you know, in our in our culture, buying jewelry for a newborn baby is such a big thing, right? So whenever there's uh, somebody to welcome into the family, people usually come see us. So that's that's what we stand for. We stand for family, you know, community, and and we're happy to be you know serving this community for the past 35 years and the next 35 years, hopefully. So next time you're passing through the stretch between Main and 48th and Main and 51st, take a moment and stop by one of these shops. Grab yourself some pakoras or samosas and give Punjabi Market the time it deserves. For CKNW and the Where We Live series, I'm Amir Ali. You know, one of my favorite all-time comic strips is, of course, The Far Side. This was such a big deal all throughout the 1980s and the early 1990s. In fact, it only ran from 1980 to 1995. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just because it mainly had animals in it or cavemen. Like, I don't know. It was so simple yet so hilarious. Even now, when I think about some of my favorite Far Side cartoons, I can't help but just start laughing. And, of course, it was drawn by Gary Larson. He stopped in 1995. He retired at the age of 45. And then today came some news that maybe, just maybe, things are changing on that retirement front. Joining us now is Tim Stevens. He's the editor-in-chief of Comicverse. Tim, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, what have we heard about Gary Larson? What's going on? Well, uh, as it turns out, over the weekend, he or someone for him created uh, thefarside.com, which is the first time the comic strip has ever had its own. And along with that was an announcement that it there would be new content coming soon, although it didn't specify exactly what that would be. Um, and it's pretty exciting. I mean, I heard you talking about being a lifelong fan. I was myself, so I'm pretty excited to see what comes from it. Yeah, I know. I have to admit that, you know, back, remember back when you like used to buy books of comic strips? I used to buy like Garfield. Oh, absolutely. Garfield and, and the Far Side were the two that I actually loved the most. I totally get that. Yeah, I was uh, Calvin and Hobbes and the Far Side. Oh, yeah. For me. So, yeah, I know that experience. I loved Calvin and Hobbes too. Okay, so how, what do you think this means? Like, why is it do you think that Far Side was so popular at the time? Like, it was just huge. I think it sort of hit every quadrant in terms of humor. You know, it was never too highbrow to not throw out a pun here and there, but it was never just pun-based humor. And it really stood out because it was that single strip. So it was entirely reliant on, you know, just getting in and getting out. Uh, It didn't have long storylines or anything like that. So every joke had to hit. That is so true. It was short, simple, to the point. Uh, Tell me a bit about what do we know about Gary Larson? He seems like a pretty mysterious guy. Yeah, I mean, um, so as you spe- as you mentioned, he retired at 45, and he just completely disappeared at that point. Uh, he wrote a book years down the road um, and cartooned that as well, but largely he stayed off the Internet to the point that actually he ended up in 1999 writing a bunch of different websites who were republishing Farside cartoons and asking them not to do it. Um, but he never until this point had his own web presence, so some of the websites did listen, but largely they got ignored as you can notice because you can find far side strips all over the internet now. Um, But he's got, he's a guy who, you know, retired at 45 and then really just sort of stepped out of the spotlight um, and stayed that way for years. You know, we know things like he was really into biology, which is one of the things that's attributed to why there's so many animals in his cartoons and things like that. But largely he just kept to himself. Right. And such a mysterious person. Hope maybe he had been working on comics all this time, just kind of for fun. Yeah. I mean, that would, that is the exciting thing and the hopeful thing, certainly. You know, there's a number of ways this website could go, but definitely far and away what I'm most excited about is the prospect of uh, at least some amount of new Farside cartoons. Right, because there was a time, Tim, product. right, when you could go into a store without seeing, like, Farside greeting cards or a Farside mug or Farside anything, and yet you don't you just don't see that much anymore. Yeah, I mean, it happened for years after even the strip started being printed, but if you really think about it, it's been 24 years since it stopped. So it makes sense that there's you know, literally a whole generation that may have never encountered a Farside cartoon in their paper, never mind anywhere else. 
So. Now, is that unusual in terms of other, you, t- you mentioned Calvin and Hobbes. The creator of Calvin and Hobbes mm-hmm. was similar, right? Like he stopped and that was it. And there was no more, no reboot, no nothing. Very much so. In fact, uh, in comparison, if anybody, he was totally resistant to merchandise. Um, the cartoonist behind that, he, um, you know, you occasionally see the sort of um, like Calvin peeing on various uh, car logos on the back of people's cars. Those are all unauthorized. Um, the cartoonist was very opposed to merchandising Calvin. So he was even a more uh, extensive, I don't want to use the term reckless, but definitely faded from the public eye immediately upon retirement. Right. So very similar, but both also very popular in the 1980s. Have, have we kind of, right. are we still in that era of really popular comics, do you think, Tim, or has a lot changed since then? I think a lot's changed because the newspaper business has changed a ton. You know, uh, you don't have to be unaware of the fact that all your content's online now, even if it does get delivered to your house at the same time. So there are comic strips that you'll always recognize, like your Garfield and your Peanuts and things like those. But largely, the, the new comic strip in the newspaper uh, is a rarity. You know, now you see web comics and things of that nature more likely. Right, but also that doesn't that mean that they're more spread out? They don't have as much kind of universal knowledge? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, try to think of a webcomic that everybody knows. I I can't do anything off the top of my head. I know a couple that are popular. But... Yeah, I can't think of any that everybody knows these days either. Like, do you still have a list of your favorites? Uh, of webcomics or of comic strips? I mean, almost all the comic strips that I grew up with either aren't printed anymore or just reprints like your peanuts. Yeah, and yet somebody who I think has continued to do this is Gary Trudeau, right? Who writes Doonesbury. That's correct. Yep, Gary Trudeau started before I was born and continues today. Um, and oh, I think we've lost him there. Been a hiatus, oh, right? Sorry, Tim, we seem to be losing you coming and going. Yeah, you're just losing there. Uh, but just before we, we uh, say goodbye then, let's just very quickly, with Gary Larson, is there any kind of timeline that we know of where we might see what's happening, where we might know what, what's going on? No, I mean, the post itself just says coming soon. Um, if I had to guess, you know, if I was a betting man, I'd say certainly before the end of the fall, but there's really no indication at this point. All right. I guess we just have to keep watching and waiting to see what happens there. Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, you too. That is Tim Stevens. He's the editor-in-chief of Comic Verse. We're talking about the potential return of Farside.